We just heard the first official comments from the judge overseeing the Donald Trump classified documents case. The lead starts right now. New today, Judge Eileen Cannon setting a new deadline for federal prosecutors and for Trump's lawyers. Why these decisions could have a real impact on the timing of the case against Donald Trump. We're going to talk to a former Republican U.S. Attorney General. Then, another Republican candidate jumping into the presidential race. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez running for the GOP nomination in his ad literally running. But with an already crowded 2024 field, is he really running for vice president? Plus, Agencies of the U.S. government, victims of a global cyber attack. Why this means your banking info, personal info, medical records, and more may have been exposed. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today with law and justice and our law and justice lead as we hear for the first time from Judge Eileen Cannon, the Trump-appointed judge who will preside over the federal criminal case against the former president. Today, Judge Cannon gave attorneys five days to notify her on the status, on the necessary security clearances they need for the classified material in the case. This, as the Washington Post reports, that one of the former president's attorneys proposed a plan to Trump last fall to attempt to stave off a potential indictment, planning to, quote, quietly approach the Justice Department to see if he could negotiate a settlement that would preclude charges, hoping Attorney General Merrick Garland and the department would want an exit ramp to avoid prosecuting a former president. Trump reportedly rejected that approach, the Post says, at the urging of some of his more combative outside advisors. But one source is casting doubt on the practicality of that proposal, telling CNN it wasn't a real opportunity to avoid charges. Donald Trump continues to lash out at special counsel Jack Smith and at the Department of Justice, calling Smith on his social media site deranged and blaming, quote, misfits, mutants, Marxists and communists for the criminal charges. That's a quote which, while not necessarily helping his legal case, is apparently helping his campaign coffers. His team claims it has now raised more than $7 million since his federal indictment was announced last Thursday. We're going to begin with CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed, who's following all of the latest developments for us. Paula, why is this order from Judge Cannon significant? One of the big tensions right now in this case is timing. How long will it take this to get to trial? Special counsel Jack Smith says he is pushing for a, quote, speedy trial, We know the former president and his attorneys have every incentive to try to drag this out, at least until after the election. Now, we know where they stand on this, but the judge has a lot of control over how quickly this moves. And this is the first scheduling order she has issued, and she's moving along pretty quickly here. Two days ago, we had the arraignment. She's saying, look, by five days from now, I want an update on where you are with your security clearances. That's an important issue here, right, because we're dealing with classified information. But she's under a lot of scrutiny, and a big question here is how quickly will this move? Now, in order to get their security clearances, the Trump team needs to know who exactly is going to be on the team. So that's another sneaky way that this could get dragged out a little bit, right? They have to find the lawyers, and then it'll take a few weeks to get the clearances. Jake, all this feels a little in the weeds, right? Sort of a real minutia, but the minutia matters in this case yeah. because these little tiny decisions are how this can get extended and extended, and these little tiny decisions have an impact on a case that could have an enormous impact on the country depending on when it's brought. These security clearances also underline the fact that you need security clearances right? to see this information, which is kind of interesting. Whether this plan that we read about in the Washington Post from this Trump attorney to negotiate with the Justice Department, whether or not it would have succeeded or the Justice Department would have even been amenable to it, it does raise questions about all the choices Donald Trump could have made differently since 
uh, leaving the White House to avoid the indictment and the arrest and, and such. Yeah, the best way to make good choices is to make sure your advisors have all the information, right? According to the indictment, the former president was not only trying to hide documents from the feds, he was also trying to hide them from his own lawyers. And I'm told by sources close to the legal team that that was one of the reasons that he wasn't always getting the best advice. They didn't always have the full picture. For example, that recording of a conversation where he says he has classified information His lawyers didn't even know about that until a few months ago when it came up in the grand jury. But we know throughout this process, Jake, he's been getting conflicting advice. Some people have been encouraging him to be more cooperative, more conciliatory with the Justice Department. Others were saying, no, fight, fight, fight. It's clear, right, which philosophy won out. And that's partly how he got himself here. Interesting. And and Trump appointed Judge Eileen Cannon. uh, She's going to preside over this case. She won't ultimately be deciding Trump's guilt or innocence. That will be a, a jury uh, but are there ways that prosecutors might be concerned about decisions she make, makes that, that could influence the case? Yeah, and they have reason to be concerned because the one decision that she has made in a matter related to this case, relating to the search of Mar-a-Lago, was roundly criticized by legal scholars on both sides of the aisle and eventually overturned. Uh, she is a young, inexperienced federal judge. And this is arguably the case of a lifetime. So she's going to be under a lot of scrutiny. And Jake, there are so many ways that she can influence this case. Uh, Everything from jury selection, right, which jurors get struck for cause, to bigger questions like which evidence will those jurors eventually get to see. And I think that's really going to be the first test for her because we know the Trump legal team, they want to revisit all of these fights that they've already had in D.C. about evidence that got in. They want to revisit those in front of Cannon. But she's going to be a major storyline here because of the power she wields over this proceeding. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss, Alberto Gonzalez, former attorney general, in the George W. Bush administration. We should note that, that in 2008, a Justice Department report concluded that Gonzalez handled classified a document in an insecure fashion at his home and in an insufficiently secure space at work, but found no evidence of any unauthorized disclosure or statute violation. Uh, thanks so much for being here, Mr. Attorney General. The, the Washington Post reports... Thanks for the reminder, Jake. Well, I feel like we do need to disclose it, and, and also we don't want anybody over hyping uh, what happened since you were not referred for any charges at all. So we want this the full... Well, I- and the lesson is, I mean, people take this seriously. Yeah, exactly. we need to take this seriously. So that's that's the lesson from that from that little incident. Yeah, the Washington Post reports uh, that Donald Trump re- rejected this plan from one of his attorneys in the fall of last year uh, to quietly approach DOJ to arrange a settlement in the classified classified docs case, give them an off ramp so they wouldn't uh, have to be put in a position of prosecuting the president. Is that something you think DOJ would have entertained? Well, that certainly would have, I think, uh, entertained the conversation uh, to see what the offer really is. And the timing would have been critical, quite frankly. If it was before the search, certainly uh, I think the chances would be greater about serious entertainment of such a such a request or uh, offer. After the search, probably not so. But uh, always being mindful of the fact this would be a, an unprecedented search, an unprecedented prosecution. And, uh, you, you know, you want to you want to get it right. You also want to be fair. You want to be fair to, to the former president. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's hard to tell whether or not to say whether or not it's something we would seriously consider. We might have, depending on the circumstances. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the actual indictment, uh, the, the, he, it, president, the president is not charged for documents that he did turn over. And that that uh, that leads one to conclude that if he had maybe just turned over everything when originally asked, 
then there wouldn't be any charges at all. Uh, Jake, I, I feel that would be the case. I really do, because it's not it really isn't good for the country uh, to to have a, a former president, a charge that brought up on federal charges. And so I think, listen, there is mishandling of classified information in Pence, Biden, uh, Clinton. Uh, and so it happens. Uh, most of the time it's inadvertent. Uh, you know, people aren't as careful as they should be. But as soon as they're made aware of it, they fully cooperate and turn the documents, return the documents or make them available to the National Archives. Whatever reason, Donald Trump didn't do that here. Yeah. Uh, and I, that's the reason why he's facing uh, these indictments, uh, it, precisely because he was unwilling to provide the information. There are, there are very few lawyers who like it when their client talks publicly about the case. I want you to listen to what Donald Trump said uh, to his donors uh, at his Bedminster fundraiser about this on Tuesday. I hadn't had a chance to go through all the boxes. It's a long, tedious job. It takes a long time, which I was prepared to do, but I have a very busy life. I mean, isn't that essentially an admission of guilt of sorts from the former president? He's admitting that he had the documents. He's admitting he didn't turn them over. Well, I, I did hear him say that he really hadn't fit, gone through all the boxes. Maybe perhaps wasn't sure. I, I think I may have heard somewhere that what he said was that in many of the boxes were, you know, clothes and shoes and things of that nature. I don't hear anybody from the Department of Justice who's gone through these boxes confirm that, in fact, there were, you know, uh, personal uh, effects of, of the former president. So, I, you know, it's... Uh, I think President Trump has really gotten himself in a very difficult position. Again, if he's entitled to a fair trial, presumption of innocence until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But the evidence, I mean, what's the assertions, the allegations in this indictment is really quite compelling. And I have to believe that there's more that wasn't included in the indictment that may be even more damning, more dangerous for the president. So, if I were advising the president, I would I would really tell him that uh, there's as 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 uh, my colleague, form, uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr says, you know, even just half of this information is proven true. The president is in some some deep trouble. I think Barr said toast. But, yeah, I hear you. Former he attorney, did, he did. <laughs> former attorney general Alberto Gonzalez. Thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. There are now 13. Yes, 13 Republicans vying for the 2024 presidential nomination. Why Donald Trump is probably not mad about that. Then maybe you could get better seats to concerts such as Taylor Swift if the fees did not cost you an arm and a leg. The big change is coming to concert tickets. And we're back with our 2024 lead and yet another Republican candidate officially jumping into the race today. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez is set to speak at the Ronald Reagan Library this evening. He will be the first major Hispanic candidate to join the already crowded Republican field in 2024. CNN's Kyung La joins us now live from the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California. Kyung, uh, Suarez leaned heavily into his family roots in his campaign launch video to say nothing of all the uh, very impressive uh, running. Uh, what are we expecting to hear from him tonight? <laughs> Uh, well, he won't be physically running, although he is announcing that he is running for president. We are expecting, based on the remarks that we've gotten, advanced remarks that we've gotten from the campaign, that he is going to talk much more about his immigrant roots, the tales that he heard growing up in a Cuban-American family and how his family and his 
political success, really embody that American success story. He's going to talk about the success in Miami and how that stands in contrast with the partisan rancor in Washington, D.C. But his essential message is that it's time for the Republican Party to pick a new generation leader and someone who is talking and not shouting or lecturing. So that's the thesis of his running. What you will not hear him talk about is Donald Trump. His argument is that it's time for this party to stop talking about Donald Trump. And it is something that is, though, very difficult, given that Trump is the pace setter for this entire Republican primary. What he is going to be uh, asked about on this campaign trail, though, is his late entry into this race, how he did not vote for Donald Trump and how he is going to make the debate stage. Though this is, Those are the challenges, Jake, that lie ahead for this mayor in Miami. We are anticipating his speeches take place uh, starting uh, later this evening. Jake. Very interesting. Ken Law, thanks so much. Let's discuss. Well, that's interesting. He, he might be the only Republican nominee, correct me if I'm wrong, who will, it, it, running for president right now, who admitted not, who admits or publicly says he didn't vote for Trump. Yes, and that will put a pretty significant ceiling on the amount of support he'll be able to get, but... I think he's a fascinating candidate. I don't think it's likely that he will be the Republican nominee. I think especially saying, I didn't vote for Trump and I didn't vote for Ron DeSantis really limits the amount of Republicans who will say, okay, you're my guy. On the other hand, he's clearly not afraid to be different. And so I'm very excited to see, can he spark some interesting conversations on the right about um, what do we do about emerging technology, startups, the economy of the future. These are the kinds of conversations we're not having a lot of right now because we're talking about the former president having been arrested and a whole bunch of other things. But Francis Suarez, I think, could lead to some interesting conversations if he makes it to the debate stage. Yeah, and and because uh, mayors do deal a lot with those issues on the on the front lines, even if you're it's not the most p- uh, powerful mayorality. Um, I want you to take a look, Paul, at this uh, part of Mayor Suarez's uh, campaign video launch. In Miami, we stopped waiting for Washington to lead. America's so-called leaders confuse being loud with actually leading. All Washington wants to do is fight with each other instead of fighting for the people that put them in office. My dad taught me that you get to choose your battles, and I am choosing the biggest one of my life. I mean, he is an outsider in that sense. I mean, like he hasn't been in Washington. I'm trying to think of the other candidates and only one or two others spent no time in Washington. Yeah, I, I think he could bring an interesting voice to the party. I think it's good for the Republicans to have a, a Latino in the in the field and and presume, possibly in the debates, although I'm not sure he can make the threshold. Uh, I, I think it's good that he's young, although he is older than Ron DeSantis. Is that right? I think he's like a year older than uh, Governor DeSantis. But I, I, I do like the idea of Elaine for somebody who voted against Donald Trump and against Ron DeSantis. Uh, I suspect that's a, it's a quite narrow lane in the Republican Party since he's already cast votes against the... T- he endorsed Andrew Gillum the first time uh, DeSantis ran, the Democrat. He did? He did. He was a fellow mayor, I suppose. Uh, yeah. But that's odd. <laughs> Gillum's career didn't end up in the best place. Florida politics is a lot of fun, Jake. It's a lot yeah. of fun. Uh, look, one of the things that has, I think, whenever I have seen Mayor Suarez speak to, say, rooms full of Republican donors, things, he always gets people talking. And part of it is the story that he tells about how he was going to try to bring these companies from Silicon Valley to Miami, setting up that contrast that Republicans really like between Florida and California as beautiful, sunny places that uh, have very different approaches to governance and taxation and housing affordability and what have you. And so, you know, Mayor Suarez was going to make Miami the crypto city, the crypto capital of the world, those sorts of things. 
Now, the crypto industry's fallen on a little bit of hard times, et cetera. So there are some questions, I think, about how much resonance that particular story will have with a Republican-based audience. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I think he raises some interesting questions about what does the Republican Party of the future look mm-hmm. like? And even if it's not Francis Suarez right now, I, I think he's an interesting addition to the mix. One thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, Paul, um, Biden's campaign manager is now being uh, forced to defend the decision by the Biden campaign to not fundraise off of Trump's indictment uh, and arrest. Uh, Julie Chavez Rodriguez told CNN, quote, it's so important that we restore the integrity of the Department of Justice and ensure that they are an independent entity and agency and that they continue to do their job in these most critical moments. And so for us, that separation, that independence is core, and it's not something that we will second guess or deliberate. On the other hand, you have uh, Donald Trump, who has raised at least $7 million since uh, his indictment was announced uh, Thursday evening. Uh, What what do you make of it? Trump no longer has any power over the Justice Department, and Biden does. And I think that's the right distinction. How refreshing to have a president who's not actually politicizing the justice system and the Justice Department. It's, of course, I think, absolutely the right decision. I would have no problem with a, a member of Congress or the Senate. They don't, they don't really control the Justice Department. I, don't, I really don't have a problem with other politicians raising money off this. But I, I think the president has got to be separate from this. Complete. He needs to not talk about it. He shouldn't raise money off it. By the way, we'll see on the June 30th uh, report how much money he raised. He should raise plenty of money, and he already has Donald Trump to raise the money for him. In other words, a lot of Democrats are terrified of the notion of Trump coming back, and they're going to give money to Biden. So he's going to raise plenty of money without it. It would, it would really be uh, awful if they were to try to raise money off this. The counterargument, I understand what you're saying. The counterargument might be the Republicans are already accusing Joe Biden of pushing to have his chief rival arrested and jailed. I mean, they're already saying that, and not just fringe people, but U.S. senators and, and, uh, and, and you know, people that you might like. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, if they're going to do it anyway, why not at least make some money off it? I think that in this one, Paul's not entirely wrong. Uh, <laughs> I, I had to say it. I had to get it in. Uh, We're look, getting mugs made. I, I really think that in this case, the stakes are too high for our republic, for the prosecution of Donald Trump to be politicized any more than it, the absolute minimum level that it will, it will be. And for Biden to add anything to that mix would be devastating, especially for Republicans that right now are kind of taking what the position articulated by Nikki Haley, which is, I think that the prosecution is political, but I'm also troubled by the allegations. You do not want to put any fuel on the fire of the first part of that statement if you are President Biden, because that's what's going to wind up making it harder for Republicans in that field to make the second part of the argument. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense, but I, I wanted to poke you guys and get you to say something. <laughs> Kristen and Paul, thanks so much for being here. Our new cyber attack targets several federal agencies, and it has similarities to a series of hacking attacks going after banks and oil companies and even universities. Stay with us. Just into the lead, a federal judge has set a trial date for another lawsuit against former President Donald Trump. This one is a defamation lawsuit from E. Jean Carroll, who was just successful in suing Trump for defamation in a separate case. This one is set to head to trial on January 15th, 2024, right around when First in the Nation, Iowa, is going to hold its caucus. Trump is also set to go on trial on criminal charges related to hush money payments in March of next year. That's going to be a busy year. Exclusive CNN reporting tops our tech lead now. Several U.S. government agencies have been hit with a global cyber attack, according to the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. This comes after a hacking spree over the last two weeks crippled major universities and even hospitals, including high-profile attacks 
on Johns Hopkins Health System and the University of Georgia's statewide system. CNN's Natasha Bertrand has more information. Natasha, tell us about this latest cyber attack and how many government agencies might be affected, you think? Well, Jake, the exact number of government agencies impacted by this is still unclear, but the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency did tell my colleague Sean Lingus that it it is providing support to, quote, several federal agencies that have experienced intrusions affecting their MoveIt applications. And they added that the agency is, quote, working urgently to understand impacts and ensure timely remediation. Now, MoveIt is a widely used file transfer software that hackers appear to have found a vulnerability in earlier this year, and they began exploiting that in late May. Progress, which is the U.S. firm that owns the MoveIt software, has urged victims to update their software packages and has issued security advice. Now, the Department of Energy is actually so far the only federal agency to confirm publicly that it was hit, saying in a statement that records from two of its entities were compromised and that the department is investigating the incident. Now, the hackers have used this vulnerability to target not only federal agencies, but also state governments. And as you said, academic institutions, Johns Hopkins University and its health system said in a statement this week that, quote, sensitive personal and financial information, including health billing records, may have been stolen in this hack. And Georgia's statewide university system also confirmed that it is currently investigating the scope and severity of the hack, Jake. Natasha, who do experts think might be behind this? Well, a Russian-speaking hacking group known as CLOP last week actually claimed credit for some of the hacks, which have also affected employees of the BBC, British Airways, oil giant Shell, and state governments in Minnesota and Illinois, among other victims. But the CLOP ransomware group is one of numerous gangs in Eastern Europe and Russia that they're pretty much exclusively focused on extracting money from victims. They are a ransomware organization. But while the Russian hackers were the first to exploit the vulnerability, experts also say that other groups may now have access to software code that is needed to conduct attacks and are basically just taking advantage of it. So, Jake, what this hacking campaign shows is that the widespread impact that a single software flaw can have is huge uh, if it's exploited by these kinds of skilled criminals, Jake. All right, Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much. Turning to our world lead, Russian President Vladimir Putin held a wide-ranging meeting with pro-Russian military bloggers this week where he admitted his army is running low on high-precision ammunition and drones, contemplated if he should attempt another attack on Ukraine's capital of Kyiv and pondered withdrawing from the Black Sea grain deal. CNN's Matthew Chance is in Russia's capital for us. Matthew, how typical is it for Putin to speak at length and publicly with these bloggers? Um, Well, it's pretty atypical. I mean, I've I've certainly not seen it before, uh, but it just shows you how influential these these bloggers, these military bloggers who are very pro-war, of course, have become in this country. They've been routinely criticizing the the Russian military and the Russian authorities for not doing enough uh, to win the war in Ukraine and for being too soft, if you like. And so uh, this was in part Vladimir Putin uh, sort of pandering to some of their views, but also trying to moderate them as well. He spoke about a number of issues. You mentioned them there. He, he spoke about uh, mobilization and said there were some public figures who were calling for a million or even two million more men in uniform to fight the war in Ukraine. He said that that wasn't necessary at the moment. He said that mobilization in the country wasn't necessary at the moment. But then he had this very sort of puzzling cryptic remark that he made about Kiev. He he said that uh, the question was, should we return there or not? Uh, And obviously there have been lots of calls amongst these military bloggers for Russia to have another go at at taking the Russian capital, which of course it attempted to do at the beginning of the conflict in in, uh, February last year. And he said, only I 
can answer this myself. And so he held out the possibility that there could be, you know, he was at least considering uh, a further escalation in Ukraine uh, in the future and another attack on the capital, Jake. Matthew, I'm really fascinated in, in learning what you think about what's going on with the uh, mercenary group, uh, Wagner. The, the chief, Yevgeny Prigozhin, says that he's not going to be signing any contracts with Russia's defense ministry now, he's been very publicly critical of how this war is being waged. How are the leaders of Russia responding? Uh, I mean, I think this is fascinating because, I mean, you're right. Look, I mean, th- this idea of contracts being signed, this was Vladimir Putin's demand now, saying that, you know, all these mercenaries like Wagner and the other sort of freelance mercenary groups that have sprouted up over the course of the past 15 months or so should now effectively sign contracts with the Russian military and become part of the Russian military. And Prigozhin has been against that for some time since the idea was first floated by the defence minister, Sergei Shoigu. But now Putin's come out and said, no, you've got to do this by July the 1st. And Prigozhin, for the first time, has basically defied the Russian president and said, no, I'm not going to do that. My men are not going to sign these military contracts. And so on the one hand, Putin has in this battle between Prigozhin and the Wagner mercenaries and the defense ministry, Putin has come down on the side of his defense ministry. And it's not clear at the moment what the consequences for that will be for Yevgeny Prigozhin. At the moment, he's being defiant, but it's going to be extremely interesting to watch just how long that defiance lasts or just how long he lasts in that kind of situation with uh, with Putin. All right, Matthew Chance in Moscow for us. Thank you so much. Uh, Now to Ukraine, where a big battlefield delivery is on its way. Hundreds, hundreds of short and medium range air defense missiles from the United States, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands and Denmark. As Ukraine makes, quote, steady progress in its southern offenses, according to top U.S. General Mark Milley. Let's get right to our senior international correspondent on the ground in Kiev, Ukraine, Sam Kiley. Sam uh, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he also concedes that this is a very difficult and very violent fight. It is. It, this isn't a surprise uh, counteroffensive being launched by the Ukrainians. And if we look at what's going on in the southeast of the country on that front line uh, with Zaporizhia, or running from Zaporizhia to Donetsk, it is probably the most heavily fortified of the Russian front lines, at least three different lines going back in depth, Jake. They've also got uh, air defences, and that is really where it's so important for the Ukrainian effort, at this stage anyway, to have those short and medium-range air defences, because the sort of weaponry that the Russians have have, have been using uh, ranges from uh, cruise missiles designed to fox air defences, decoys that fly, they call it the drunk, it flies all over the place through to surface-to-surface Iskander missiles that carry half a tonne of explosive. And, of course, the aircraft themselves are delivering dumb and smart bombs on the front lines. And it's going to be on those front lines, I think, where most of these shorter-range and medium-range missile systems are going to be deployed. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the country doesn't need protecting too. Yes, there's Patriot, there are other systems here, but the Russians have been trying to overwhelm them here, uh, the air defences for some time, everything from the very cheap Shahed drone costing some $20,000 or so manufactured in Iran, right through to the Kinjal, the hypersonic missile that has been proven to be uh, vulnerable to the Patriot missile. So all of this, a very, very intensive effort on both sides, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley in Kiev, Ukraine. Thanks so much. The jury has just started deliberations in the death penalty trial of the deadliest anti-Semitic attacker 
in American history. We're going to go outside the courthouse next. Also in our law and justice lead, jury deliberations are underway in the trial over the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in the history of the United States. Prosecutors are seeking the death penalty for the gunman who killed 11 people during an attack on the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh on, in October 2018. As CNN's Danny Friedman reports for us, this has been an emotional and intense trial. A sacred house of worship turned into a hunting ground. That's how federal prosecutors described the Tree of Life Synagogue as they began closing arguments Thursday morning. The prosecution detailed the brutal executions of each of the 11 worshipers, six of whom were shot in the head, and recalled the chaotic morning captured by 911 calls and body camera video. All to prove their case that defendant Robert Bowers killed Jewish people just because they were Jewish. The prosecution brought up the testimony of worshiper Dan Legger, the nurse who said he instinctively rushed toward the gunfire that morning but was shot in the stomach. He lay on these stairs pretending to be dead and prayed, his yarmulke fallen off his head. Body camera evidence showed first responders carrying Legger to safety. The prosecution also spoke about 97-year-old Rose Malinger and how as the grandmother hid with her daughter, Andrea, underneath a pew, Bowers sought them out and deliberately shot both of them killing Rose. The prosecution said motive stemmed from years of anti-immigrant and anti-Semitic online posts made by Bowers leading up to the shooting and his admission to police that day that, quote, all Jews had to die. In its closing argument, the defense did not dispute that Bowers killed the 11 worshipers and wounded six other people. Instead, Bowers' attorneys attempted to reframe his motives, saying Bowers killed these worshippers not because they were Jewish, but because one congregation supported a refugee resettlement group. The defense argued hatred of immigrants motivated the attack, while acknowledging his statements to police about those motives were unexpected, shocking, and irrational. While the most graphic pieces of evidence were not made public, the pictures released tell the story. Bullet holes in a memorial wall, shattered windows a gun near a bloody children's book, and this prayer book pierced by the gunman. Now, Jake, as jury deliberations began, we actually got a statement from one of the congregations who lost three members that day almost five years ago. It's from New Light Congregation. I'd like to read part of it. It says, there can be no forgiveness. Forgiveness requires two components, that it is offered by the person who commits the wrong and that it is accepted by the person who was wrong. The shooter has not asked, and the dead cannot accept. Now, if convicted, the death penalty phase would come next. Jake? All right, Danny Freeman in Pittsburgh, thank you so much. She helped blow the whistle on Facebook, leaking documents that showed the company put profits over people, and now this former Facebook insider has a new warning for us about social media. Stay with us. In our tech lead, calls for accountability and transparency among social media companies are growing, including now by Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen. In late 2021, you may remember, Haugen leaked documents that showed how Facebook, now called Meta, prioritized profit over people and allowed its algorithms to harness political divisiveness and hate speech and diminish children's self-esteem, both here in the U.S. and around the world. Now Haugen is out with a new book detailing all of it, The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. And Francis Haugen joins us now. Congratulations on your book. Fascinating stuff. Throughout the book, you talk about 
how Facebook got away with so much because its software is closed off to the public. People have no idea what's going on there. And, and how Facebook unfairly influenced national elections, even toppled governments uh, in different parts of the world. Do you think we as a society are better prepared or protected for the 2024 presidential election in the U.S. because we're now aware of this, or are we doomed for more of the same? I'm deeply concerned that going into 2024, we face much larger risks than we did, say, four years ago or three years ago at this point, Um, because Facebook dissolved the team that was responsible for making sure the 2020 election was safe. Preparations for the 2020 election didn't begin a month or two before the election. They began over a full year in advance. We should be asking Facebook right now for what level of preparations are being done, what level of investment, and demand public transparency and accountability. What I don't understand, these companies are worth billions and billions of yeah. dollars. They can trillions. The, trillions of dollars. Yeah. They they can hire more people to to you know mm-hmm. to weed out the Nazis and take down misinformation and all that. Why don't they? So we have a problem right now that's pretty simple. We require companies like Facebook to report their profit and their loss numbers and their expenses, like how they got to those profits. But we don't require them to report the social side of the ledger. If there are consequences like danger to our election, voter disenfranchisement, influence operations, all those things are invisible in the quarterly reports. Mark Zuckerberg came out earlier this year and said, hey, wow, this interesting opportunity happened. Elon Musk fired seven, or 75% of the employees of Twitter are gone, and there were no consequences. We can have a year of efficiency. And he fired over 20,000 employees. Many of my favorite safety researchers are no longer at the company, and not voluntarily. Going into the, 2020 elect, or the 2024 elections, I worry that many of the people who would have kept our elections safe were cut in the name of efficiency. You also mentioned in your book how the transparency and accountability from social media, it, it's still in its infancy. You write, mm-hmm. quote, by allowing social media companies to keep the curtains closed out of short-sighted fears and the real challenges and costs of being the first mover on transparency, we're choosing to let them struggle and fall short, isolated and mm-hmm. alone. But, but, of course, it's not just about social media anymore, right? I mean, 42% mm-hmm. of CEOs surveyed at the Yale CEO Summit this week say that artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence mm-hmm. has the power to destroy humanity within 10 mm-hmm. years so far. Mm-hmm. The European Union is the only global force working toward implementing any sort of rules on how companies can use AI. How worried are you about the U.S. falling behind? Mm. So it's interesting. We have these longer term uh, existential risks from, so, from, from large language models, these forms of AI. Those are the ideas of the computers waking up and coming after us. Experts generally agree the most dangerous problems about these large language models are not 10 years off, they're two years off, they're one year off in the form of things like influence operations, information operations on social media. It used to be if you wanted to run a large influence campaign and try to sway an election, you'd have to hire tens of thousands of people to sit there and type at computers. Even if they copy and pasted things over and over again to scale up their impact, you know, even that, those repetitions allowed them to be caught. When you have AIs, now you can have 10,000, 100,000 virtual compelling people all trying out new variations on lies. We can basically A-B test uh, viral variants and figure out what kinds of misinformation is most seductive to us and spreads the fastest. In your book, you also talked about Instagram owned by Facebook uh, or Meta and how it causes, quote, a teenage girl's self-esteem to plummet, leading another death Mm. to suicide. 
You wrote, quote, some of these girls one day may want to start a family only find they're unable to conceive because of the damage they've done to themselves mm-hmm. in order to look like the women they follow on Instagram. Um, and we know that just last month, the U.S. Surgeon General put out an advisory mm. saying children are exposed mm-hmm. to harmful content on social media. According to the CDC, 2021, suicide was the second leading cause of death for children and young adults ages 10 to 24, causing 11 deaths for every 100,000 people. Um, you say social media can be made safe. Mm. Uh, how? How can it be made safe? Sure. You know, let's let's start thinking about just a few of the levers we have that can really rapidly make these things, these platforms safer. Probably the easiest one to, to begin going after is the fact that kids are online very, very late at night. You know, uh, the Surgeon General himself said that one in three teenagers say they're online till midnight or later most school nights. If, t- if 30 percent are on till midnight, 10 percent at least are on until 2 a.m. Let's imagine a world where Facebook had to report how many teenagers were on at 10, 11, midnight, 1, 2, 3 a.m. How rapidly would they begin to innovate new ways to help kids choose when to go to bed and actually go to bed at those times? You start seeing parents opting for safer social networks once they had fewer late night sessions. You'd have advertisers threatening to pull their ads or divestment campaigns, lawsuits. And so those are the kinds of things where transparency can directly inspire, like allow unlock innovation for, the, for, for uh, social well-being. All right, Francis Hogan, thank you so much. The book is The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. It's out now. Uh, appreciate it, Francis. Good luck with the book. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And a reminder, if you or anyone you love needs help, please call or text the Suicide Lifeline 988. That is 988. Coming up, now it's the White House's turn to say, look what you made me do. Will new pressure from President Biden over those service fees for concert t- tickets make any difference? Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, ever wonder how your $50 concert ticket turned into a $75 price tag? Well, now you'll get to see all the feeds before you even decide to add your seats to the checkout card. And it's not just concert tickets. We're talking hotel rooms and plane tickets, too. Plus, the chair of the Republican-led House Oversight Committee keeps publicly sharing allegations about the Bidens, but now even he admits publicly he does not know if all the claims being made behind them are real. Where's the proof? And leading this hour... The judge overseeing Donald Trump's federal criminal case is weighing in on the case for the first time since his arrest and arraignment. Judge Eileen Cannon just gave the former president five days to pick his attorneys and to make sure that they can get the clearance necessary to be able to look at the highly sensitive material involved in this classified documents case. Let's bring in CNN anchor Caitlin Collins. Caitlin, what do we know about how this clearance process will work? Well, it's the logical next step, right? Because obviously this is a case that, you know, in addition to being rare because it's the first time a former federal or former president has faced federal charges, it deals with highly sensitive documents and not just anyone, you or I, could actually look at those documents. So the attorneys that are representing him will have to get some kind of clearance here. Obviously, that typically takes, you know, if you're applying for a White House job, it could take a year to get that right. clearance. This will be expedited, obviously, because it's in the interest of time for the DOJ and for everyone involved here. So basically what she is telling them is to get the ball rolling on this, to start working on who is going to be getting these clearances. One thing that could complicate this is Trump's legal team is not fully formed yet. He right. still does not have that Florida attorney that they were searching for. It's not clear that Chris Kyes is going to be a permanent member of this team. We'll see. Um, and so that is what they're working on now. And Caitlin, um, Judge Cannon, we should point out she's a Trump appointee. Uh, she did a Trump-friendly ruling uh, that was overturned uh, months ago. Um, I know that there are people on the prosecution team who are wary of her. 
How does the Trump team view her? Do they do they think that she's going to be an asset? They're thrilled. I mean, they could not be happier to have her on their team. I've spoken to people and the, or to have her overseeing this. I mean, yeah. she is a Trump appointee. She was picked in the days after he, he lost the 2020 election. Uh, that's obviously not a comment on whether or not she's a good judge or a bad judge or indifferent. But they're thrilled because they saw how she was what her rulings were when they went to her for the special master case last fall. That was when she got overruled by an uh, appeals court in a pretty embarrassing fashion for a judge because basically they said she was giving Trump special treatment because he was a former president, not treating him like she would if a search warrant was executed regarding you or me or a regular person. And they weren't saying she was biased. They just said she was wrong. And so I think that's a question of how she will factor into this because a judge has pretty broad view here over what evidence is included the timing of this trial, obviously, the Trump team is probably going to look to drag this out. The DOJ wants it to happen very quickly. And so the Trump team is very happy they got her. It was completely random. I yeah. should note that they got her. They are thrilled that that happened. We should point out that plenty of the judges that ruled against Trump in that post-election madness were Trump appointees as well. And yeah, they, we have no idea what We Trump have no idea. She could be completely uh, on the up and up. She is re- relatively inexperienced, though, we should also note. Um, joining our conversation right now, Caitlin, stick with us. Uh, CNN Chief Legal Analyst Laura Coates, along with Michael Sherwin, the former acting U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. Laura, l- uh, let me ask you, the attorneys in the case now have five days, mm-hmm. five days to notify Judge Cannon on the status of the security clearances for uh, the lawyers and, and their ability to look at the classified material um, how slowly do you think this is going to go after the five days? Could this bog down the process? And doesn't this kind of just underline the fact that this is classified material, that he had it? It absolutely underscores that point. And the idea of trying to get the attorneys representing and having them available to review the security clearances is part of the rocket docket, right? The idea of having the attorneys treat this client and the judge treat the client in the same way as other people, not to slow roll, to take your time and figure out, do I want this person or that? The whole goal here is to expedite this entire thing in interest of the actual justice system. The idea of security clearances, though, is going to be a tough one because on the one hand, you've got the notion that, look, if they're so classified and so sensitive that it has to be enough for an indictment of a former president to have defense with information, then what is the substitute for the jury? Not just the attorneys, but the jury ultimately to actually hear the evidence. That's part of the SEPA format we're talking about, and that's going to be part of the slowest part of the entire process. All right. And uh, Michael, you have extensive experience with cases dealing with national security. How does the fact that this case involves classified documents, how does it complicate the process? Are there going to be attorneys that Trump wants to represent him that can't get the clearance necessary, et cetera, theoretically? I mean, look, that's a great question. And, and this just goes to show that divorced of what people are saying about who wants this to go quickly or slowly, even a regular army officer getting a security clearance or someone at Department of State, sometimes it takes months. It could take six to 12 to 18 months to get clearance. Now, you could expedite that, but this is something that's built into a national security case, a counterintelligence case that divorced of how fast or slow parties want this to move. There are things that have to occur at the pace of the government that is inherent in slowing this case down. And, you know, talking about Judge Cannon, you know, right now, I think she's probably the most important actor in this whole thing. It's not Garland. It's not Jack Smith. It's not Trump. It's the judge because she will set the temper, the tone and the pace of this trial, you know, over the next 12 to 6 to 12 to 18 months. And it's the butterfly effect. It's these small rulings like the five days for security clearance. 
What's going to happen with the, the pretrial motion practice? What's going to happen with the gag order? Is she going to institute a gag order? You know, that's something that Trump likes to weaponize, his ability to talk about the, the evidence, the discovery. You know, these little rulings can have a significant impact, you know, on the, on the actual ultimate result of the trial. I love a butterfly effect reference. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, Caitlin, let me ask you. I, so Donald Trump, the politician, right, he goes and he says these things that could actually hurt him in case Trump, the politician, hurts Donald Trump, the defendant, possibly, like the things he said the other night. On the other hand, Trump, the defendant, helps Donald Trump, the politician, because of all the money he's been able to raise. Seven million dollars, at least. That was the number, the latest number we got from the campaign. And that was just in the last week, since last Thursday, when Trump posted that he had been indicted. Of course, that was how we found out that he was actually indicted is because he alerted us. So they certainly are using it to fundraise. I mean, they're making this is exactly what happened after Manhattan. They used it after he was indicted in Manhattan, I should note. Uh, they used it to raise a lot of money. They're doing that here. They had a fundraiser with it was big, bigger donors. Typically, most of his donations are small dollar donations um, right after he was arraigned in Miami. And so this is something they'll continue to fundraise off of and continue to use as he is on the campaign trail while he is simultaneously dealing with his attorneys, getting security clearances, figuring out who those attorneys are going to be. And the prosecutors are going to be salivating in part. I mean, just look back at the town hall when he mentioned E.G. and Carroll. A judge then allowed those statements that he made, obviously the civil trial, very different than the criminal context, to then be a part of an amended complaint in her pursuit of damages. Everything it requires to raise that level of money, the level of bombasticity, the idea of how charismatic, what you have to reference to get the crowds going, big donors to smaller donors, all are going to be little breadcrumbs for a prosecutor to envelop possibly into a case. Remember, the indictment already has the 2016 statements he's made in the past, so they are already well in tune with possible traps. It's a minefield from here on out. His attorneys are going to, you mentioned the gag order, whether it's a court-ordered one or the attorneys impose one and say, listen, everything you say is now going to be fair game. (laughs) Every single thing you reference and intimate, Fair game. It could corroborate the indictment. It could buttress the government's case. He has to be aware. So, uh, Michael, at least some of the classified documents appear to have been stored in New Jersey at the Bedminster Golf Club. But Trump's only facing charges in Florida. Do you think it's possible he could also potentially face charges in New Jersey? I think that's a good theoretical question, because, look, I think this case theoretically could have been charged maybe in D.C., in New Jersey, in the Southern District of Florida. I think the special counsel did the right thing because the majority of the evidence, the majority of the witnesses are in South Florida. So and under under double jeopardy, if the government proceeds in South Florida, this is obstruction. And this is retention of classified information. So if the government loses in South Florida, they can't just under double jeopardy, now bring the case in New Jersey. Now, New Jersey is interesting because according to press reports and other types of you know, things we've seen in the media, it appears that Trump, it's alleged that he showed classified information to individuals. So that's dissemination of classified information. That has not been charged in South Florida. So theoretically, if the government loses in Miami, they could bring a dissemination case in New Jersey. I think, though, that's highly unlikely. You know, like Omar said in The Wire, if you go after the king, you better not miss. You know, the government better not miss in Miami. And if they do, I do not see a secondary case in New Jersey. So too heavy handed. From Omar in The Wire to Carl Sandburg, who famously said, if the facts are against you, argue the law. If the law is against you, argue the facts. If the law and the facts are against you, pound the table and yell like hell. That's what we've seen from Trump so far. Maybe there will be a better strategy, a better response. But so far, it's been pounding on the table, yelling like that. That was also in the wire, though. Jake. Was it really? Just, I'm this sure is it was. like getting like inception. <laughs> uh, but you know what's so interesting to me as someone, obviously, who's been covering Trump for a long time? The way he responded 
when he went to Bedminster and gave that speech after being arraigned in Miami, compared to what he said at Mar-a-Lago after he was arraigned in New York, was completely different. I rewatched the two speeches. In Mar-a-Lago, when he was talking after New York, he barely even mentioned that case. It was a few lines, and then he dismissed it and was talking about unrelated grievances. In Bedminster, he spent a lot of time basically laying out his defense for this, talking about the Presidential Records Act, talking about how uh, what he believes he had the right to do versus what other presidents had done. He kind of was way more in the weeds. I'm not saying it's a good defense strategy. That's obviously for others to judge. But he was much more going through it, and that's because he's always been much more worried about the documents case, and he understands the peril that he's in, the legal peril he's in, in this. So, yeah, he is talking a lot about it, but it's, it also is revealing of just how much more concerned he is with it. Yeah. We have some breaking news now. The Air National Guardsman accused of posting Department of Defense classified information online. He has just been indicted. That's next. Coming up also, where's the proof? Growing questions as the House Oversight Committee chairman keeps making public allegations about the Bidens, while also saying he does not know if the evidence is real or even exists. Then, the Justice Department is now looking into the golf world stunner that merged the PGA Tour and the Saudi-backed LIV Tour, Live Tour, what they're investigating now. Stay with us. And we have some breaking news for you now. A federal grand jury has indicted that Air National Guardsman accused of posting a trove of classified documents on Discord social media. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira, you may recall, was arrested and charged under the Espionage Act in April. Let's bring in CNN's Oren Lieberman, who's at the Pentagon Force. Oren, tell us about this indictment. Uh, Jake, 21-year-old Jack Teixeira, a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, has been indicted on six counts of willful retention and transmission of classified information relating to the national defense. As of right now, he is being detained uh, pending additional hearings and pending the uh, continuation of this case here and the upcoming trial. He has not yet entered a plea. According to the Department of Justice, he, he disseminated this information in two different fashions over the course of months beginning back in January 2022. Uh, Remember, he entered the Air National Guard in 2019, got a security clearance a couple years later, and then began disseminating this, according to the Department of Justice, in January 2022. At first, he would access the classified information online, according to DOJ, and then take notes on it and spread it that way on the Discord server. And then, as this process continued, according to DOJ, he would take images of these documents that were labeled secret or top secret and spread the... the documents like that, actual images of classified and top secret documents. Department of Justice alleges that there could have been and was a grave danger to national security, and that's why we're seeing uh, these serious charges at this point. The question now, uh, where does this go from here, and when will Jack Deshera enter a plea? That's certainly a development we'll keep an eye on. According to the release here from the Department of Justice, each of these counts carries up to 10 years in prison and a fine of up to $250,000. So, Jake, very easy to get a sense of how seriously DOJ and the government view this case. Yeah, Oren Laborman at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. I want to bring back CNN Chief Legal Analyst Laura Coates, along with former acting U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, uh, Michael Sherwin, um, Laura, how serious are these charges against Deshira? Extremely serious. He actually was alleged to have disseminated images of classified documents at a variety of different levels on this chat room called Discord. There is some statements about him maybe doing it for bragging rights or otherwise. Obviously, that was not persuasive to avoid any charges because it is the core of the Espionage Act. We're talking a lot about the title of that statute. People think about the James Bond or Ethan Hunt of Mission Impossible. Really, it's about preserving the sanctity of documents we want to keep close to the vest. 
that are defense-related information that should not be exposed to the outside world. And if they do, they're harmful to the United States or could aid in our foreign allies or foreign adversaries' work. And so this underscores the gravitas associated with those who have the authority to have documents and either misuse it or never had it to begin with. Remember, the nature of his work as an Air National Guardsman left him able to access the documents, but unrelated to an actual security level of clearance for him. He should not have had access fully to the documents, nor to disseminate the way they did. So this just shows you any conversation about, well, no one ever is prosecuted for cases like this. We are slapping some on the wrist and others are getting indictments. There you have it. And this is for a now, Air National Guardsman is also one now for a former commander in chief. Yeah, and I'll get to that in a second. But on the Tashira issue, how, how do you defend this? I mean, like, it seems like they got him dead to rights. Yeah. He did it. Here are the documents. They caught him. Look, it's going to be a tough case to defend because of, I think it's clear, the evidence is dissemination. But I think what's interesting here is, like Laura just mentioned, when you bring these cases, you know, the evidence may be clear, but it's also sometimes an indictment with the government because you ask, why is a 21-year-old given access to TSSEI materials when he doesn't need it? Right. He may not have any operational need for those classified materials. Despite that, he's still given a clearance. There's still literal operational control of how he could access that information, how he could disseminate it. So, so look, in some ways, bringing this case to trial could be embarrassing to the Department of Defense. What checks were in place to actually protect that information and allow this very young enlisted officer to have some very high-level information that he never even needed for his job. So I'm just looking, I'm just looking at this press release from the U.S. Attorney's Office um, in Massachusetts from today. And I don't know if the acting U.S. Attorney, Joshua Levy, or the acting special agent in charge of the FBI, Christopher Demena, I don't know if this is boilerplate language or they're making a point, but if you read it, what they say about the Tashira uh, case, individuals granted access to classified materials have a fundamental duty to safeguard the information for the safety of the U.S., our active service members, its citizens, and its allies. We're committed to ensuring that those entrusted with sensitive national security information adhere to the law. That's from the acting U.S. attorney. The American people entrust security clearance holders with our nation's secrets and anybody who flagrantly violates their duty to protect those secrets by unlawfully communicating classified national defense information to people who are not entitled to receive it will be brought to justice to answer for their criminal conduct. That's from the acting special agent in charge of the FBI. Those comments could have been made about President Trump. Absolutely. I mean, those are the same comments that were made about Chelsea Manning, what, several years ago. And it's, this is like Chelsea Manning 2.0, another young enlisted person, access to top-secret TSSCI information, little operational control and dissemination. So, again, these charges are serious. Uh, I think the evidence is compelling. But on the other side of the coin, what has DOD done over the past 10 years to safeguard this information? What operational checks have they done to ensure people have the right access to this information? I think... This is just deja vu all over again. And, Laura, obviously there's a, there's a real difference here, not only because a, a president has the right to classify or declassify information, although there's no evidence that he de- declassified right. any of the ma- relevant material in this case, but also um, we don't know of, we know of two instances of him talking about classified material or showing something, Donald Trump, but this dissemination was massive and worldwide. The Washington Post is still writing stories based on this classified information. Does that matter? Does the, the fact of the dissemination 
matter when it comes to prosecution uh, or conviction? Well, one, there's no perfect analogy, and we see that the Espionage Act encompasses and contemplates a wide variety of behavior. Dissemination can be charged under different aspects and elements of the actual Espionage Act. Certainly for the public's opinion, they might say to themselves, okay, the willful retention, it feels wrong to the letter of the law, but I'm more worried if this information, which is normally, as Jack Smith underscored, attached to a human being, compromises our channels of communication, our diplomacy, thinking about aspects. I might be more concerned about that aspect if it's disseminated, but it is still something that's violative of the law because we don't know if you are willfully retaining information. One, what's your motivation? Have you disseminated in some way I have yet to detect or did you intend to do so? The idea of it just gathering cobwebs has never been a very convincing notion for many people as to why you'd retain them. But I think it does matter in the court of public opinion and politically as to the why and how you use them. Interesting. Laura Coates, Michael Sherwin, thanks to both of you. The House Oversight Committee investigation that has even some Republicans asking, "Okay, where is the evidence now? Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead. Some Republican lawmakers think something smells fishy, but when pressed, they do not have any evidence that a fish ever existed. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer claims that President Biden, quote, sold out the United States and allegedly ran a bribery scheme when he was vice president, along with his son Hunter and a foreign national. Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa this week alleged that the foreign national has more than a dozen recordings of conversations with the Bidens, but... As CNN's Sarah Murray reports, when asked for any evidence of any wrongdoing, neither Grassley nor Comer have, as of now, been able to deliver. A bold and unsubstantiated claim from a senior Senate Republican. The foreign national who allegedly bribed Joe and Hunter Biden allegedly has audio recordings of his conversation with them. Seventeen such recordings. Even prompting members of his own party to pump the brakes. I'm not aware that we have verified that those recordings exist. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley says a foreign national has audio tapes of Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden related to an alleged bribery scheme involving the foreign national when Biden was vice president. The existence of the tapes allegedly documented in an FBI document known as an FD-1023. These recordings were allegedly kept as a sort of insurance policy for the foreign national in case that he got into a tight spot. Now Grassley tells CNN even he isn't sure if the tapes are real. I just know they exist because of what the report says. Now maybe they don't exist, but how will I know until the FBI tells us, are they showing us our work? This as fellow Republicans question the legitimacy of the tapes and the motivations of the foreigner making these salacious claims. We don't know if they're legit or not, but we know that the foreign national claims he has them. This could be coming from a very corrupt oligarch who could be making this stuff up. The Committee on Oversight and Accountability will come to order. The tapes are the latest unverified allegation Republicans have raised as they investigate the Biden family's business dealings and the work of the FBI. When these allegations came to light under the Trump administration, then-Attorney General Bill Barr tapped Pittsburgh U.S. Attorney Scott Brady to look into them, 
Investigators were unable to corroborate the claims. It was thoroughly checked out by the Trump Justice Department, and they couldn't find anything there. But some of the allegations were passed along to Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who was overseeing an ongoing criminal investigation into Hunter Biden. It was uh, provided to the ongoing investigation in Delaware uh, to follow up on. On Capitol Hill this week, the FBI's deputy director refused to discuss the tapes. Do you have those 17 recordings? I'm not going to comment on any investigative matters, Senator. Now, we should note that the FBI has stressed that this document that's at the center of this all, these FD-23s, they include unverified allegations that come to the FBI from informants. You know, the White House has also dismissed this allegation against the former president. In a new statement, White House spokesperson Ian Sam said, everything in their so-called investigation seems to be mysteriously missing. Informants, audio tapes, and most importantly of all, any credible evidence. Jake? Yeah, I mean, if they have evidence, let's see it. Mm-hmm. I. I'd love to see it. We'll report on it. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Speaking of House Republicans, remember that ugly debt ceiling fight? The one that ended with a much heralded Biden-McCarthy compromise? Well, it's apparently not over. And apparently, Speaker McCarthy is trying to back away from the agreement. This week, the Republican House Appropriations Committee chairwoman announced that she was going to move all the appropriation bills through her committee at a lower level, the lower fiscal year 2022 level. That's below the cap on spending that was carefully negotiated between Speaker McCarthy and the White House. As the top Democrat on the House Appropriations Committee, Rosa DeLauro, puts it, quote, it is the law of the land and not even before the ink is dried, they walked away from it, unquote. And Congresswoman Ranking Member DeLauro joins us now. So Ranking Member DeLauro, simply put, is Speaker McCarthy breaking his promise? Uh, yes. I mean, we had a, uh, a, uh, a very clear uh, negotiated compromise with the President of the United States and the Speaker of the House, where they set the, uh, uh, the caps, if you will, uh, for both defense and domestic spending. And now uh, they uh, just have walked away from this, uh, th- th- this deal. And it, it, it's really rather incredible. Uh, I don't, I, you may or may not know this, Jake, and by the way, thank you for having me be with you this evening. I, um, I voted against the compromise. Uh, I, I would never have, you know, seen the government default, uh, but I voted against it because I was an unhappy uh, with the uh, domestic spending portion of it and that we were really going well below the 2023 numbers to address the, uh, to address the issues. And I find myself in the position of really uh, uh, amongst those who are looking at the appropriations process of being the only person or one of the only people that says, I'm willing to work within the framework of the, uh, of the, mm. the agreement. I'm an appropriator. I, I negotiated a deal last December with the Senate, uh, Democrats and Republicans. We came to a, a, uh, a deal. You have to think about this. Last week, we had uh, skies that were orange from wildfires. We had a portion of I-95 
of you know collapsing in, right. in Philadelphia. You talked on uh, not that long ago about the underfunding of pediatric cancer. Yep. We've got kids who are in a mental health crisis. We have a, a, a hunger crisis in the United States. And what the Republicans wanted to do was to uh, really make massive cuts. Right. That was the basis for, for the agreement. And now they don't want to abide by the agreement. So I'm not sure if you talked to the chairwoman of appropriations, the, the Republican, yes. your Republican counterpart, but, but you, you have said that the Republicans' decision to back away from this deal that everybody, mm -hmm. I thought, had agreed on uh, in terms of McCarthy and Biden, uh, quote, all but guarantees a shutdown come yes. the fall. Mm -hmm. um, so what does the chairwoman of the committee have to say and how are Democrats on the committee working to, to fix this or are your hands completely mm -hmm. tied because you're in the minority? Well, no, I mean, we, we are in the minority, but no, I, I, our hands are not tied. First of all, if you know about appropriations bills, they have to pass in the House, they have to pass in the Senate. There needs to be Republicans and there needs to be Democrats. Uh, it's bipartisan, bicameral, and then the president signs it. If we don't get that kind of cooperation, the president will not sign the bill. It's probably one of the only pieces of legislation on a yearly basis that uh, has these restrictions around it. So we have to come to a conclusion. The issue will be how long will the, Repu the Republicans try to hold this process hostage and what kind of harm will be done in the, uh, in, 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 in the interim. We can move forward. I'm prepared to move and to deal with, you know, and I have, I, I did tell this, I've told this to the speaker. I have told it to our own leadership, uh, who are, we are in concert on this. I've told it to the chairman of, of the Appropriations Committee, mm -hmm. and I've told it to my Senate counterparts. Let's go. We have an obligation. Because what we can't do is have the government shut down. And that is potentially where the Republican majority wants to take us, to a government shutdown. All right, Congresswoman Rosa DeLora, the ranking Democrat on the House Appropriations Committee. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Happy Father's Day. Thank you. There are already a lot of presidential candidates. So why is Governor Ron DeSantis urging yet another person to throw their hat into the 2024 race? Stay with us. My dad taught me that you get to choose your battles, and I am choosing the biggest one of my life. In our 2024 lead, the Republican primary field is growing. Today, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez throwing his hat in the ring for president. You saw him in that video. He released this first campaign video this morning, and he's set to speak at the Ronald Reagan Library this evening. My panel is with me to discuss. Uh, Jeff, we've never, this nation has never elected somebody from City Hall from a mayor's mansion to the White House. There have been attempts, Giuliani and Buttigieg and Sam Yorty and, and others. Uh, what do you think? Does he have a chance? Well, sure. I mean, uh, the nation has never elected a president from Florida either. And there happen to be three candidates from Florida. So, <laughs> look, he is uh, a bit of a long shot. There's no doubt about it. But um, he is throwing his hat into the ring. He'll be speaking tonight. I'm told he's going to be talking really about how he's different, his generational difference. Uh, he's 45, a year older than Ron DeSantis, but certainly presents as much younger than the Republican uh, frontrunner and the uh, current president. But beyond that, he's running against Washington, saying that he's a mayor. He knows the problems up close and personal. Um, Washington has been fighting about things that don't matter to your lives. Um, look, he has a good biography. There's no doubt about it. But I think his biggest challenge is getting in so late trying to get on that debate stage in August. It's really a higher bar 
than some people think. So that is his uh, first uh, hurdle to cross. Yeah, let's talk about that because, Benji, to qualify for the first Republican debate on August 23rd, a candidate will need to have donations from at least 40,000 voters and be polling above 1% in three national polls or in two national polls and one state poll. Um, That's a tall order for a, a mayor. Yeah, and hitting 1% in a poll is not a very high bar. But those donations, we've had these similar requirements in prior elections, and the result was you had some of these fringe candidates spending huge amounts of money to advertise on social media, asking for, say, just give me a dollar, just give me $2 to get right. me on the debate stage. We see Chris Christie already doing this. Uh, so I think you're going to have to see the same from him because he just has very low name ID right now. It's also interesting because it feels like a narrative has been set with Trump as the front runner, DeSantis next, X, Y, and Z. But every time someone gets in the race, it undermines the idea that people believe in Trump and that's where they're going and the party's just, you know, rounding the wagons and that's what they're doing. Everyone who steps on stage is kind of a vote saying maybe we should do something else. And I think he's such a great example of the kind of candidate that 10, 15 years ago, maybe when uh, Nikki Haley first stepped on stage, like they thought they were going to lean towards, you know, a person of color, definitely Latino, definitely in a leadership position and who can represent generational change. And I think he's sort of it's weird. I don't know if his time in a way has passed because the party is no longer leading in that direction. Yeah. He's also the only one that is admittedly did not vote for Trump, uh, Francis Suarez. Uh, and. That, that could really hurt him. Uh, he also didn't vote for DeSantis, he says. It's pretty striking. Two times he didn't vote for Trump. Not, he's disagreed with DeSantis in the past in a variety of reasons. Obviously, if he was close with DeSantis, he wouldn't be running for president. But he endorsed Gillum <laughs> in 2018. I mean, that's pretty stark. Right. Pretty but striking, everyone keeps saying that there is a middle lane somewhere, that there are, it's not just about never Trumpers, and it's not just about always Trumpers, that there are maybe Trumpers, that there are people who are thinking, I don't know, I'm not sure. Like, they're not necessarily gravitating towards him just because he's under fire legally. And that's the kind of person that as far as thinks is like, you know, he has appealed to. So DeSantis has um, his biggest critic is Donald Trump. I would say his second biggest critic is not Francis Suarez. The second biggest critic is Gavin Newsom, the California governor, who's constantly going after uh, DeSantis, constantly challenging the way he governs. Gavin Newsom uh, trying to challenge DeSantis to a debate and DeSantis uh, today responded to Newsom's challenge. Are you going to throw your hat in the ring and challenge uh, Joe? Are you going to get in and do it? Or are you just going to sit on the sidelines and chirp? Interesting. I mean, he has a bit of a point, actually. I mean, <laughs> if he's, uh, you know, he's the governor of, of a Florida, uh, the governor of California. If they're ever going to align, they have to be running for the same office. Uh, but look, I think one reason Gavin Newsom is going after him is because of what Governor DeSantis has been doing on immigration, including some things in California, in Governor Newsom's um, home state. So, look, I think for now they're going to have to be content with uh, sort of fighting at each other from afar on Fox News and other places. But uh, Governor Newsom is, um, you know, a while ago we thought, boy, maybe he would consider challenging Biden. He's ruled that out in every respect. But if something were to happen, if there was uh, a plan B or plan C, he certainly seems like he uh, is interested in something beyond California. Or even governor. just the fact that it's not going to be a gerontocracy forever. And there has been a conversation about who is in line, who is among the next generation of stars for the Democratic Party. The only way you can kind of show that off, I think, is by picking fights. Yeah. Um, and so we're witnessing two people trying to be relevant, 
to primary voters, of which they are not totally relevant yet, but as a way of showing the public, look, we're here, we're next in line, you know, give us a, a shot. And uh, DeSantis was on Hugh Hewitt. Uh, take a listen to what he had to say about Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominees. Are you going to make the same kind of pledge to the Republicans as you go around the country that your judges will be like the Trump judges? Well, actually, I would say we'll do better than that. I mean, I, I respect the three appointees he did, but not none of those three uh, are at the same level of Justices Thomas and Justice Alito. I mean, some sh- shade thrown at Gorsuch, yeah. Barrett, and Kavanaugh, who are, who are pretty beloved by the conservatives. It's a very specific type of shade. This sounds to me like two people who went to Harvard talking to each other about Another judge who went to Harvard. Right. Uh, this is about this kind of hair splitting. I don't think is something that Republican voters really do is rate the justices against each other. But there is a tradition of this. You know, Republicans work so hard to get these justices appointed only to have them run against each other, saying they weren't conservative enough the next time. Donald Trump did this to Ted Cruz in 2016. He said Ted Cruz supported John Roberts. Therefore, you have to vote for me. I'm sure this fate is awaiting future justices and candidates. And, and Audie, uh, sticking with the Supreme Court, we could see four decisions in critical Supreme Court cases handed down over the next just two to three weeks. We're watching for uh, the fate of affirmative action in college and university admissions decisions, whether President Biden has the unilateral power to forgive student loan, loan debt, whether businesses can deny services to same-sex couples, and whether state legislatures should be given the final say over rules in federal elections, four huge cases coming down the pike here. They are. The last one is the most fascinating to me because when it comes down to it, it's basically saying that state legislatures really should be kind of the last line of defense in deciding a state's fate in the Electoral College. Obviously, as we've seen the last couple of presidential elections, especially the most recent one, that is very serious implications. Fraud. Given yeah. how the the kind of partisan divide of our state houses, so uh, on paper that's the one that seems the snooziest, but that's the one to watch. And uh, Benji, a poll taken at the end of last year following the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, showed that Americans' trust in the Supreme Court had fallen to a 50-year low. And I have to say, I don't know that that's going to improve in the next two to three weeks. I don't think anything's changing after Dobbs. I think this is just a new paradigm for the court. And, you know, there are some Democrats who welcome this, who have been trying to rally uh, Democrats who prioritize judges and even take seriously ideas like expanding the court for years, who were frustrated that Democrats liked the court more than Republicans in polls in the Obama era, even when they were tearing up the Voting Rights Act and campaign finance laws. So I think we're just in a new paradigm now where Republicans and Democrats just have a different view of this court. All right. Thanks, one and all. Appreciate it. And of course, I would be remiss if I did not remind you that it is Audie Cornish Thursday. And that means there's a brand new episode of Audie's podcast, The Assignment. This week, she takes a look at the tipping economy and why some restaurants are getting rid of tipping altogether. You can download The Assignment once you get your podcasts. It is a great, great podcast. Take a listen. The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Coming up, a chance for karma to track them down as ticket brokers keep taking advantage of service fees. Our money lead now. The White House is cracking down on junk fees, putting pressure on several ticket sales and venue companies to show consumers what they're really paying for up front. So that $700 ticket for a Taylor Swift concert won't come as a surprise anymore. You'll know exactly what you're going to pay from the start. CNN's Tom Foreman joins us now. Tom, help us understand what these junk fees are. Well, you're a music fan. I'm a music fan. Anybody who is a music fan has encountered it before. You want to go see a big act? Taylor Swift is a good example. And here's what happens. You go in and you say, okay, I'm going to cut loose 
for four tickets here at $749 per ticket. Not me, but somebody else. Okay. And then here's what happens. Look what happens after that. You've already agreed to pay this, and then suddenly you pick up almost $600 in additional fees that you didn't see when you agreed to this. And you wind up with that whopping score. And, and this is kind of crap also, right? I mean, like the service fee. Like this is what is supposed to be included in this. That's what they're doing to give you this. That's right. right. And it's not just the great big acts. The Cure has been one of the groups that has really fought against this. Look at this. This is really reasonable. You can go in and get a ticket, $20 a piece, $80 for four tickets. Look at this. This one fan posted it because there were more, more charges and fees than there were for the tickets. That's, so, abs- that's absolutely. That's what the White House has been going after. And consequently, insane. the White House has called here. These groups met today at the White House to say they have agreed to upfront pricing on all of this. They want people to be able to see it. And what that means is if you look at what Ticketmaster ticket- typically said, you'd go in and you'd see the face value price up here. That's the thing you would see. Right. And then you'd pick up all this other stuff when you got to the checkout point. You've already committed. You've got your tickets. You're excited. And suddenly all these other fees now what these companies are saying, the ones that have agreed to this, is they're saying, look, we will put this all up front. When you agree to the ticket, you will know right away what the bottom line is so you're not being strung out that way. So this happens to, to people not just with tickets, though, right? This happens with all sorts of industries. Yeah, but it's, a whole, it's a whole cottage industry in its own right. We all know it now. And that's another thing that the White House and other consumer activists are going after. They're trying to say, look, it can't be just tickets. Airlines. Yeah. You get on board and they say, if you want your family to all sit together, this is what it's going to cost. Another fee on top. Right. Of Internet, cable services, things like that, where your phone services, where they want to charge you a great big fee if you want to get out of the deal. A fee that's so high that you feel like you can't even get out of right. the deal. And hotels. How many times have you traveled? You show up at a hotel. You just want to be there for a night. You're moving on fast. You're all agreed on the price. And you go to check in and they say, oh, and we have a $35 fee for everybody here for our resort fee for a right. resort you're never going to use right it happens yeah. all the time so the, the, have these industries agreed to this or no they have not agreed to this okay. and the point here is not necessarily to even say to all the industries you can't charge these fees what they're saying is you have to tell people yeah it's up, up front yeah if you say if you if you're a hotel and you say we are pet friendly that's fine you can't then have the pet owner show up and say oh you brought your pet that'll be an additional sixty dollars for your pet Before you get there, what these people are trying to say, these consumer advocates, is you need to tell people. Tell them what you're going to call, charge them, and then at least they'll know. Okay, I like it. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Coming up next on the lead, the Justice Department reportedly is teeing up an investigation into the controversial Live Golf merger with PGA. Will they land on the green? But first, here is CNN's Wolf Blitzer with what's next in the Situation Room. Wolf. Jacob, we're going to be joined by CNN's David Axelrod, the former Obama senior advisor, who just spoke with his old boss about the 2024 presidential race. Uh, The former president sharing his very candid thoughts about the campaign for the Republican nomination. He says the party still needs to, quote, walk the walk on confronting racial issues in the United States. We'll have a lot more of David's conversation with former President Obama. That's just ahead right here in the Situation Room. Finally, in our sports lead, the Wall Street Journal reports that the Justice Department has notified the PGA Tour that it is going to review that planned merger of the PGA Tour with Saudi-backed Live Golf with an eye towards whether it violates antitrust rules. The Journal reports a senior PGA Tour executive told employees this likely will delay the merger for at least a year and may, in fact, cause the deal to fall apart entirely. Critics have long maintained 
that the Saudi League is an attempt to distract from the country's rampant human rights abuses, including the 2018 murder of journalist for The Washington Post, Jamal Khashoggi. The PGA counted itself among those critics until the merger was announced last week. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky, if you have it, if you have an invite, to TikTok at Jake Tapper. I'm also on Substack. You can tweet the lead at the lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to the lead once you get your podcast. all two hours just sitting there like a delicious hoagie. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.